You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We're joined today by Devlin Barrett and Adam Entis, two journalists that work here in Washington, D.C., Devlin covers the Justice Department and FBI for the Wall Street Journal, writing about national security, hacking, espionage, crime, and surveillance. He's also worked at the Associated Press and the New York Post, where he got his start as a copy boy in the early 1990s. In New York, he covered police and federal law enforcement from mafia dons to terror plots before moving to Washington in 2003. Adam covers national security for the Washington Post, writing investigative stories about diplomacy, intelligence, and national security strategy at home and abroad. Before that, he worked at the Wall Street Journal and Reuters. He covered the George W. Bush White House for five years after 9-11, and then spent nearly four years in Jerusalem as senior correspondent, covering one war in Lebanon and two conflicts in the Gaza Strip. Together, they are the author of an extraordinary long-form article called The Last Diplomat, which appeared in the Wall Street Journal. This is something that, if you haven't read it yet, go out, take time to read this. Uh, you can get it, I know, certainly through Devlin's Twitter feed get around the paywall there. Uh, but uh, it's truly a remarkable article in that this is something that could only happen today. This is not something that you would ever see happening before in American history. And it is a result, as you'll see, of uh, some extraordinary circumstances that uh, just, you know, baffling to think about. Uh, so let's jump in. Adam, can you give us a little bit of a biography, a short one and a half minute synopsis about the subject of this article, because this is not just some State Department lackey. This is somebody that was an ambassador, somebody that was a assistant secretary with a pretty prestigious career at State. So the uh, subject here is uh, Robin Rafel. Uh, she grew up in Washington State. Uh, she could, uh, you know, her father was a uh, was an international uh, uh, businessman who would travel a lot and come home and tell Robin about his travels and. She just became fascinated at a young age reading National Geographic and historical novels that her father collected in the world uh, outside of Washington State. And um, that's what led her when she was, uh, you know, in, uh, a teenager uh, to go and volunteer with a Christian uh, group uh, to help build, uh, you know, small infrastructure projects uh, in Iran, which was her first kind of taste of international affairs and of 
being uh, uh, being a diplomat, uh, and she was fascinated by the people she met, particularly the expats, um, and that kind of gave her this taste of the world outside, and, and she became interested in this. And after college, uh, she returned uh, to Iran, where she met uh, Arnie Rafel, her uh, f- her first husband. Uh, and Arnie was this incredible rising star in the State Department, a master of old school diplomacy, uh, who uh, was a was uh, you know a bit of a womanizer, and uh, he had uh, an affair uh, with his secretary. Uh, in uh, in the embassy in Tehran, and keep in mind this is the early 70s before right. the rise of, you know, the uh, ayatollahs and uh, 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 and so on. And uh, he ended up uh, having an affair uh, with Robin. Uh, they fell madly in love, uh, and uh, uh, he uh, separated from his wife uh, Myrna, and they uh, basically uh, married on the grounds of the embassy. Uh, returned to Washington, so her first her first gig with the government was uh, with the CIA in Washington at Langley, and she uh, that gave her her first taste of signals intelligence, uh, which would be so so critical to her life going forward. Uh, Arnie was posted then to Pakistan in 1975. Uh, he was a relatively uh, junior uh, political officer at the embassy, and she got a job with USAID. Uh, the aid uh, organization which works very closely with the State Department. And that's when she began with Arnie to uh, become, uh, really unpack, uh, you know, this very complicated uh, political scene in Pakistan. Yeah, unpack, no pun intended, really, with that. Um, really, Pakistan is central to this issue, and I think that's that's what drew the article to me so much, because in intelligence circles, when you think about Pakistan, it's really this love-hate relationship where... You never know who you can trust. You never know who is uh, kind of two-facing you, uh, telling you that, you know, yay USA, but at the same time working with the Taliban or with al-Qaeda. And so Pakistan continues to be an interesting concept, and it certainly was the case back in the 1970s as well. Um, This – you talk about old-school diplomacy also, and I like to kind of tackle that because that's really also central to this story. Can you talk a little bit about how, when they went there in 1975, they began to practice this old-school diplomacy? How did this play out? Well, basically, uh, you know, uh, a diplomat was judged by uh, how, many, uh, how many foreign contacts the person had. And so, you know, the, uh, the, 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 army, the, the U.S. military would fly in uh, American movies, for example, and Robin and Arnie would invite their Pakistani contacts to come to the embassy to watch these movies. And it was, it was all about, you know, meeting for drinks, yeah. uh, dinner parties. Um, at the time, Pakistan uh, had a nuclear program that was very much a concern to the Americans. And Arnie's job was to basically try to find out what secrets, um, you know, he could pry out of his contacts about what Pakistan's intentions were with regard to that program. And Robin, uh, you know, was, was at that point very junior uh, and just coming into the State Department. But she was, uh, in the words of some of her colleagues, she was learning from the best. Uh, and Arnie was the best. And she's a, she's a, uh, she's very uh, easy uh, person to talk to. Uh, and that uh, she never loses touch with anybody she meets. Um, she could easily be an intelligence officer, right. just, as, just as much as she could be a diplomat. And uh, that's when, you know, uh, South Asia was sort of a backwater within the State Department. If you really wanted to rise in state, you would focus on the Middle East, not South Asia. 
Right. This is when that area of the world is not considered a way to move to the highest levels. Right. And so she was coming in in an area where there really weren't a lot of specialists, which is which allowed her to kind of make a name for herself in this area, which is what she did. Yeah. And let's let's skip ahead a little bit because she eventually ends up being the assistant secretary of state focused on South Asia. Uh, and during her first trip to Islamabad as assistant secretary, she visited the foreign ministry and met somebody that would become uh, kind of a key component to this story. And uh, I'm going to let you pronounce it um, because I'm not going to butcher this woman's name. But this is the woman who became Pakistan's ambassador to the United States. Right. It, her name is Malia Lodi, and she's becomes an important person just in Robin Rafel's life. But and they had their relationship starts at you know when these are both fairly young women and making their careers for themselves and it becomes an important relationship in their careers to always be in touch with each other and not every every year of their lives but over a period of what becomes decades they are they are close and and adam can can probably explain that a little you know make no mistake about it uh they were using each other Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh they they were uh, they were both good for each other's careers well i was gonna say that Lodi seems to be a master at this old school diplomacy as well Well, she's a journalist by Mm -hmm. uh by you know at the time she was a very prominent uh editor of a of a newspaper uh called the muslim in pakistan and later uh another newspaper after the muslim folded and she uh, she would have these parties at her house and invite all these diplomats to come to her house. Diplomats, journalists, uh, military officers, you name it, would come to her house. In fact, it was the everyone wanted to go to Lodi's parties because uh, the who's who of Islamabad would all be there, including uh, Benazir Bhutto herself would occasionally show up. And so the diplomats at the embassy, um, you know, would all want to get tickets. Uh, I'm making that up. There are no tickets, but they would want to get an <laughs> yeah, invite, right. an invite to this party. And uh, you know, for Lodi, she looked at Robin and saw, you know, she went to college. Uh, she sp- spent some of her college years getting to know Bill Clinton. You know, this is a person who somebody from a society like Pakistan. That is a huge, p- important factor in a relationship. If right. somebody is you know, f- old friends for the current president, uh, Bill Clinton. That's somebody you got to know. So for Malia, it's a no-brainer. You gotta, you really got to get to know Robin. And for Robin, it was the same thing. I mean, here was this ambassador, y- young, uh, you know, uh, uh, very outgoing ambassador coming here to Washington. Uh, it was somebody that Robin was going to have to uh, get to know. Who was going to shoot? They were going to have to have all these conversations about the nuclear program going forward, uh, and so they became uh, contacts slash friends, and uh, and and that was uh, critical again. Like Signals Intelligence, that relationship was the key to what eventually happens to Robin. Yeah, I mean, because I think a lot of people may not remember this. Our, our listeners skew younger, perhaps, uh, and even if you, if they were not younger. Uh, paying attention to Pakistan in the mid-1990s when there's a lot of other things going on may not have been at the top of people's list. But there's a real downside to being seen as a friend of Pakistan, to be trusted in a country where, again, a lot of the intelligence community in the United States didn't have a very clear picture of who was the good guys, who was the bad guys. And particularly those who didn't like Pakistan very much, uh, they were very suspicious of her close ties to these top officials. Yeah, I mean, uh, the ambassador at the time, Ambassador Simon, 
uh, who doesn't appear in the story. It was uh, removed. Um, but he uh, he remembers uh, intelligence officials bad-mouthing Robin uh, back in uh, that period starting in uh, the early 1990s because uh, the uh, intelligence community and the non-proliferation community uh, really wanted to isolate Pakistan to put pressure on them to, uh, to come clean and stop their nuclear program. And Robin uh, uh, and uh, Bill Clinton uh, took a different view, uh, which was that uh, that isolation of Pakistan uh, only uh, pushes them in that direction. And uh, only by bringing them into the tent, creating a relationship, would you be able to uh, get them uh, to feel uh, confident enough and comfortable enough to, that they would realize maybe that they don't need uh, to produce the weapons that uh, they were producing. Right. So it's a different philosophy. Right. Uh, and uh, obviously, back then, uh, the, uh, the, the, you know, when Bill Clinton was president, and this is all pre-9-11, the State Department was hugely powerful. Uh, the FBI and the CIA, they were very powerful too, but it wasn't the same. Right. Uh, and so Robin was able to uh, fend that off. And uh, in these skirmishes between the CIA, uh, the nonproliferation community, and Robin... Robin came out on top. Well, yeah, it was in 1995. There was a, a br something called the Brown Amendment that Congress passed, which actually eases sanctions on Pakistan. And, and as you write, both not only Robin, but also her Pakistani contact, we yeah. talked about, were kind of lobbying to kind of support this bill. Right. Yeah, they were aggressively lobbying. That was when they built trust in each other. That's really the moment when the relationship uh, really develops and they get uh, particularly close. Uh, and uh, again, the Brown Amendment, uh, rolling back, uh, beginning to roll back the sanctions, uh, really uh, uh, was not uh, well-liked by the nonproliferation community and by the intelligence community. And shortly after, uh, uh, Robin and, uh, and Malia succeed in getting that legislation through, uh, Robin has a, a guest come to see her in her office with a very uh, scary report for Robin. And the report was that, uh, that she was captured in Signals Intelligence uh, sharing uh, information with a Pakistani official, probably Malia Lodi, uh, who was her main, con main uh, contact at that point, uh, that revealed more uh, than uh, about what the U.S. intelligence community knew about Pakistan's nuclear work than was intended to be shared with them. At the time, the intelligence community would authorize State Department officials to reveal a bit of what we knew in order to basically send the message to the PACs that they couldn't hide from us what they were doing. And it was always difficult for these diplomats to know where the line exactly was. So uh, Robin was obviously uh, floored. Uh, she was basically being accused of uh, revealing classified information to the Pakistanis. It was a piece of signals intelligence. Uh, and uh, her reaction was, I, I didn't do it. This is not true. She asked, she went to go see the intelligence folks at the uh, State Department who suggested that she asked the uh, uh, diplomatic security to investigate. Uh, they interviewed her. Robin loves to take notes. In every meeting I ever had with her, mm. everything meeting I've seen, <laughs> she loves to take notes. And in the meeting with the DS, di uh, diplomatic security agent, she took uh, notes about what they were saying and what she was saying. And at the end of that investigation, she took her notes, uh, which were classified, and other documents related to this investigation, even though 
diplomatic security dropped it. She was not uh, accused of anything. Uh, there was no infraction or anything put in her file on this. But she took her notes and she put them in her safe in her State Department office because she was afraid that this allegation would return to haunt her down the road. Right. And she, the, as she told friends later, it was an insurance policy that if that happened, she'd be able to refer to her notes. Do we know why they thought that she was breaking some kind of laws? You know, do we know what they picked up with signals intelligence that led them to investigate her or at least to accuse her? Well, this is, this is one of the things about signals intelligence. In this case, what we're probably talking about, we don't know for sure, is um, this would be probably uh, either uh, probably an FBI wiretap of the embassy uh, in, uh, in Washington. And so what they probably intercepted was Malia Lodi or somebody else at the embassy uh, sending a report back to Islamabad saying, I just met with uh, Robin, and she told me X, Y, and Z. To which, when the FBI guys see that, or the NSA people see that, uh, they, uh, they take on faith that Malia Lodi, or whoever wrote that report or sent that report, is telling the truth. Right. Uh, and, you know, that is the first uh, lesson of signals intelligence, which <laughs> is... Um, you know, when diplomats report and when anybody talks on the phone or sends an email, um, they may be trying to impress their bosses. They may be trying, they may be just lying. They may have misunderstood. You just never know, frankly. Uh, and yeah, so, we've become so dependent on signals intelligence that I think obviously people inside the agencies understand these limitations, but uh, very few people in the general public understand the limitations of signals intelligence. This is a really good lesson for that. Is there? It's not magic, you know. The NSA can listen to your entire phone conversation, have a verbatim transcript of it, but it doesn't necessarily tell the whole story. And this is a great example when that's the case. Yeah, and and uh, and so you know, for uh, you know, the the takeaway, uh, you know, uh, of this, uh, you know, keep keep in mind at the time, Robin was not uh, punished for this. There was no wrong, non, no wrongdoing was found against her for this uh, uh, alleged. Uh, crossing of the line that she that she had allegedly done um and the state department put it away it, it ended there right this is pre-9-11 um you know it, it, i would say that uh, arguably it worked the system worked back in the 90s yeah. mm -hmm. um you know the fbi didn't you know uh go ahead and try to uh destroy her back then um, but those were different those were different uh, times. You were alluding to certain things that we'll get to shortly. Um, I, I, there's a little bit of an aside about her time in Iraq, and, and it has nothing to do necessarily with the kind of the broader gist of the story. But I think it's really interesting because you, you learn a lot about who she is. Because a lot of people paid attention to Iraq. They understand diplomats in Iraq aren't just kind of, you know, gad flying about around. Many of them are being kind of stuck in the embassy. But her old school diplomacy still wins out in this case. And even when she was posted there, she went out and did things that most men, certainly, a lot of soldiers were afraid to do. Yeah. I mean, she, you know, uh, hated being cooped up. Um, she she uh, really, uh, you know, viewed her job as one where the more contact she had uh, with, uh, with local officials... Um, in the local community or other diplomats around Baghdad or around Iraq, the better. Uh, the better she can, you know, do her job and the better her cables 
and her reporting uh, back to the U.S. government would be. And so, you know, she had a reputation in Baghdad by her colleagues for, you know, frankly, uh, not paying a tremendous amount of attention to uh, what the security officers uh, at the embassy uh, thought uh, uh, should be done, i.e., uh, always travel in a large motorcade, for example. And, you know, she felt like traveling in a motorcade just drew mo more attention, made you more of a target. And she would rather jump into a taxi uh, and uh, just go to her meeting, a local taxi, to a meeting like a local would do. And that's going to attract less attention. Uh, so it's a different philosophy. And, uh, you know, she's been doing this for a long time by the time she's in Baghdad. Mm -hmm. um, she's, she joined the service in, I think, 77. So, you know, we're, she's already, you know, a couple decades into right. it. Uh, and she, she knows what she's doing, um, you know, and uh, she doesn't get into any trouble as far as we can tell. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, her bosses, you know, the generals uh, who she's dealing with respect her for, you know, uh, basically jumping, uh, you know, trying to get out there. Uh, not being, uh, you know, frightened, not sitting by the, you know, embassy pool in the green zone, right. you know, and hanging out and just talking to other Americans, but actually getting out there and mixing with folks. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously that was uh, her greatest sales selling point uh, within the State Department. Well, and she eventually finds her way back in Pakistan, which is her, you know, area of expertise. But even there after 9-11, even though it's not a war zone like Iraq, um, the diplomatic security service at the State Department had gotten so paranoid about potential terrorist attacks that they essentially had locked down the embassy there in Islamabad as well, uh, where, where diplomats were not going out unless in armored vehicles or other things like that. But that, again, didn't stop Robin from doing her job. Right. And so while, like, uh, everything had changed in Washington dramatically where, you know, her bosses at the State Department were all changed and, you know, it's, it's the same It's the same Robin, uh, different bosses in Washington, but in Islamabad, pretty much nothing had changed. Um, you had the same players, Malia Lodi, you name it, everybody was the same. She knew them all. She'd known them since the, in some cases, since the 70s, uh, in most cases since the 80s and 90s. But when you had, uh, you know, ambassadors that had never actually set foot in Pakistan before they took their assignments, you had station chiefs, CIA station chiefs, who literally would be there for maybe two years maximum. Uh, and, you know, they didn't really have much of an opportunity to get to know people. And you had uh, the, the State Department, because of concerns about security, which were legitimate concerns, right. uh, uh, they uh, tightened up uh, how long people would stay. And so, you know, tours were shortened roughly to one year for most people. And so what can you really get to, how can you get to know people in a year? I mean, it's impossible right. for a well, lot of people. And even if you do, you're not going to know them better than somebody who spent decades yeah. working on them. So you can yeah. totally understand why she can open doors that other people couldn't open and why people would want to talk to her and tell her things that they wouldn't tell this newbie that just got off the boat right. uh, who they didn't trust. Uh, and though they trusted her, so they would tell her things. And then she would report what she got to a very small group of people. Right. Uh, and maybe... You know, you have to understand she's part of this uh, new new environment, this new team at the State Department at this point. It's called the Holbrook team. Richard Holbrook is is in charge of it. Uh, he is a maverick. He uh, he does not uh, he encourages his uh, people who work for him not to waste their time navigating the bureaucracy. He wants them to just you know uh, sidestep the rules. Really, uh, they don't. He doesn't want a lot of cables. He wants them to just get the job done. And uh, 
for, you know, Devlin can talk to this, I mean, for people in law enforcement right. and in the intelligence community, this was a scary change. Uh, and Robin was a key piece of it in one of the scariest places for the CIA in the world. And they did not understand what this new, you know, department at the State Department, unit in the State Department was doing. And that unnerved them. Yeah, was, you know, when she goes back to Pakistan, even though the players are somewhat different, she goes back to the same tactics she used before, meeting for drinks, meeting for coffee with all these top generals and people. There's a great, great quote that you have in the article. This is from Abid Hassan, a former World Bank official in Islamabad, who said, you weren't talking to a U.S. diplomat, referring to him. You were talking to Robin. And this kind of shows that the, the level she had reached with trust in, in Pakistan is something you don't see very often, and it can be incredibly important for doing actual diplomacy. Yeah, it's, it's a matter of uh, what, do you, what is your priority? Is it, uh, is it you want somebody that can open doors, or do you want somebody who's going to go and read talking points in these meetings? You know, and so Robin was, was the person who opened doors, got people talking. She knew everybody. And um, for the people that didn't have that level of access that couldn't get in those doors and couldn't get those people talking, that didn't have the trust, they just assumed that something was wrong. Yeah, I mean, but this is exactly what Richard Holbrook was trying to get people to do. He talks about this idea of creative chaos, you know, using informal meetings, informal conversations, uh, which seemed to work pretty well until Holbrook suddenly dies. And I, and I think, it, you know, that seems to be a real turning point in this story. Because he had, I mean, people knew his name, right? People knew Richard Holbrook even before he died as this kind of larger-than-life diplomatic figure that could have potentially protected Robin yeah. as, you know, time went on, even when some of these powerful entities, I'm hint, we're, we're alluding to a lot of stuff that's coming up, these powerful entities began to line up against her. Someone like Holbrook may have been, you know, her, her rabbi and, or her Yoda uh, and protected her from these problems happening in the future. Um, but this... This is problematic because in in December 2010, Holbrook suddenly dies. Holbrook dies, and uh, suddenly the pendulum uh, in Washington swings from uh, you know uh, uh, trying to have uh, you know uh, uh, engagement uh, with the Pakistanis uh, to uh, basically isolating the Pakistanis. And uh, you know, just before Holbrook's death, uh, WikiLeaks uh, published uh, the diplomatic cables which were hugely embarrassing uh, for the diplomats in Pakistan uh, and made, uh, you know, uh, Robin's counterparts on the Pakistani side very nervous about talking to Americans. And then a few weeks later, after Holbrook's death, you have the Ray Davis incident oh. where you have a CIA contractor kill uh, two people, two Pakistanis, and that creates this massive uh, rift between uh, the CIA and the ISI, which is uh, Pakistan's intelligence service. And then right after that, of course, you have what could have been the death knell to any kind of relationship. Right. And that's the bin Laden raid. Right. And so Robin is, uh, you know, again, as she has for decades, arguing for engagement at a time when everybody else in Washington pretty much is saying, screw them. You know, we shouldn't even be talking to them. Right. They're the bad guys. And Robin is like, you don't understand. And you can imagine for the people who wanted to isolate Pakistan why her arguments made them suspicious. And, and you write that the fact that it wasn't just one-sided. The, the, the 
everyone in the United States didn't want to talk to the Pakistanis. Robin said she would. The Pakistanis didn't want to talk to any of the Americans either, but they talked to Robin. Which just deepened the yeah. suspicion when the uh, U.S. ambassador, uh, Cameron Munter, is not invited to meetings that Robin is invited to with the president of Pakistan, it, it, raise, it raises eyebrows in two directions. One, people who are Robin's fans in Washington think, I'm so glad we have Robin there. She can actually get through to these people. But to the people who think Pakistan is playing us, that this is a double game that they're playing, it's divide and conquer. Is right. the way they're, they're, they're you know the way the intel community thinks of Pakistan. That's their goal: divide and conquer. Well, they were dividing Robin from everybody else. She was basically being used in the minds of the hardliners in the U.S. government. And this, you know, obviously this uh, now the temperatures increasing, and uh, she's isolated uh, from her from more and more of her colleagues. Uh, and she really believes in what she's doing, and they increasingly believe that her friends in Pakistan are, you know, intending on doing us harm. Uh, and so that is the dramatic, uh, 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 we reached this moment really in 2011 when, uh, you know, it's really clear that a, 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 a train wreck is about to happen. Yeah, well, and then there's, there's a, the environment in D.C. is dramatically changing as well right. within, the, within the, the foreign policy and the law enforcement community. This is a time when Chelsea Manning, is leaking to WikiLeaks. Later on, this is when Snowden is doing his revelations. The, you know, most people don't know that the reaction, perhaps, to Chelsea Manning was even stronger by the White House than it was the Snowden. I mean, there's a crackdown after right. this took place. Right, and so what you're seeing in that time period is <clears throat> there's an incredible amount of focus and concern within the government about what's called the insider threat, meaning someone in the government is going to put either put all our secrets out there, which is basically what Manning and Snowden did, or betray us to our enemies. And in the intelligence community world, you know, Pakistan is essentially viewed as a hall of mirrors in which you can't tell who are your enemies and who are your friends. Therefore, you have to wall off a lot of them until you can be sure. And so when you get into this hall of mirrors, on the, on the one side, you have this increasing isolation from Pakistan. On the other, domestically, you have this hunt for moles inside the government that is very intense, and the, and the Bureau feels pressure to find the next Snowden before the next Snowden actually happens. And that's the environment in which, you know, Robin comes into the crosshairs, basically. Yeah, and this is a time when, you know, people argue or mock the ability of the intelligence community to work together. This is a time when the NSA and the FBI are working pretty well together with the, with far as foreign intercepts are concerned being passed along to the FBI, what's known as an 811 referral. Right. And 811s are sort of a fascinating, like, bureaucratic um, tool because they're basically – it's when the NSA finds something in an intercept that makes them think that there might be an American uh, providing uh, secrets to a foreign entity or actor. And so the NSA obviously is is – just looking through tons and tons and tons of communications intercepts all the time. And they send, you know, hundreds of 811s to the FBI every year. Uh, what we were told is that about 20% of those actually get, you know, investigated. You know, some of, a lot of them, frankly, don't add up to much from the FBI's point of view, but there is about 20% of them that become actual looks at those individuals. And one of those individuals was Robin Rafel. And, and, what starts to happen, so the, the FBI opens an investigation in uh, early 2013, 
and what starts to happen as the investigators go start you know what they call circling the target they look around sort of the the out the exterior observable things of her life the things you don't need a warrant to look at metadata that sort of thing and they see things that worry them chief among them just the sheer volume of her contacts with Malia Lodi and other people in Pakistan and one of the things that that is becomes a hallmark of the investigation is they don't see it, it doesn't make sense to them why someone with her job at that time which is you know economic advisor economic aid advisor is talking to people in the Pakistan military talking to people with friends in the Pakistan military talking to all sorts of people across the spectrum and talking to Malia Lodi on a, on a near daily basis sometimes. And so to them, those two things don't match up. So they keep looking and they keep opening doors secretly and quietly, but they keep opening doors. There seems to be a potential easy way <laughs> that the FBI could figure out that there was something much more benign going on. That's to actually talk to people at the State Department and find out what her real role was. And that's that's a huge point, and that's a key distinction that, that Adam mentioned earlier, which is that's concerns about the what's called the office where she worked, which was called the SRAP office. And in the SRAP office, you, you are by that point you already have a lot of people, both in the FBI and in the intelligence community, who who view the S someone someone a former law enforcement official told me that when the SRAP's office was created his first thought was, well, that's a disaster waiting to happen. And Someone's it, career is going to go up in flames because of this thing. And this is Richard Holbrook's team. Right, that's perfect. Richard Holbrook's yeah. team, the SRAP's office. And so what happens is when they start to have concerns about Robin Rafel, they don't feel comfortable taking it to her bosses and asking, like, what's going on here, which is what they had done, basically, in the 90s, and everything got sorted out pretty ev- evenly. And it's also what they had done historically in other spy cases. There's a famous Soviet-era spy case of a woman named Judith Coplin, a DOJ employee, a Justice Department employee, who, like, within days of the FBI getting information that suggested she might be a spy for the Soviets, the FBI was talking to her boss, and the boss basically said to them, oh, my God, what can I do to help? And, and they, the boss was an integral part of that investigation from the early hours of that investigation. That is not what happened with Robin Rafel. Basically, mm-hmm. the FBI and the intelligence community looked at, at the set of players and thought, we are not going to talk to any people who work directly with her about this. It's too dangerous to talk to right. them about it. And that decision, frankly, has pretty significant consequences for everyone involved. Right. And it's, it's, it, they, they didn't talk to her bosses um, because the FBI wanted to catch her. Right. It right. wasn't about... Um, you know, preventing her from continuing to share information that the FBI and maybe the CIA thought shouldn't have been shared with Malia Lodi and others. It was about getting a scalp. You know, they wanted to catch her in the act. They had, uh, you know, they started circling the target. They started listening to her communications. Uh, They could have gone and tried to straighten it out by talking to people, but they were afraid that if they did that, they might tip off Robin or Robin might find out about it somehow and then change up her... Uh, communications, and then suddenly they'll get no- nowhere with right. it. They wanted to bring a case. That was their goal, which is their job. Right. Um, and so they were pursuing a case, and Robin was going about her business, not, ha- oblivious to the scrutiny that she was secretly under. Uh, and you know, it 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 comes to a head when you know she made a fateful decision in 2005 when she retired from the State Department. That. Those notes that she took in 1995-1996 during the diplomatic security investigation of the earlier allegation, she had, she had it in her office safe. 
and she had her retirement ceremony and she had a flight to catch the next day uh, to the Gulf. And so she took, you know, kind of sloppily, she took uh, everything in her office, all the family photos, all the, you know, all the, you know, uh, paper, loose paper she had on her desk. She emptied her safe into moving boxes. She jumped, dumped it in her car, drove home, ran to the basement, and shoved the papers into a mahogany uh, chest that she has down there. And then she, at least, uh, you know, according to her and to those around her, she just forgot about it. Yeah, forgot that. I mean, I, it's understandable after 10 years or so not remembering that's there. Um, the FBI doesn't come off as all that positively uh, in this article, but certainly they go through the necessary steps. They they don't skirt around any kind of rights issues. Uh, the, after they had circled the target for a while, they do what they're supposed to do next. They go to the FISA court. That's right. They get themselves a warrant, uh, and they get a warrant to do what's called a sneak and peek. Right. Which, which, if you've seen Law and Order at all, you may know what we're talking about here. But I mean, essentially, it's a surreptitious entry to get inside her house. Right. It's you know, in in another era, you would have called it a black bag job, but the, because these are court approved, you know, black bag is not really the right term for this. But essentially, what you do is you search a place in a way so that the person whose place is being searched has no idea that they that their house was ever entered. So what happens is the the investi- the general FBI investigation begins in early 2013, and then. By a year later, they've been looking at her at this point for a year. They feel they have enough smoke, as, as a number of investigators have described it, to justify going into her house secretly when she's not there, searching it, and then leaving in, a, in, a, in such a way that she never knows the search occurs. And one of the things that happens in that search is they find those old documents in the basement. And so right away, the agents think they have one thing on her mm-hmm. at a minimum, which is mishandling of classified information. So the investigation continues, but the whole time they're doing it from that sneak and peek on, their assumption is that she will, they will end up charging her right. for the mishandling. The only question is, what can they catch her saying in her, in her monitored conversations since that time? Well, and that's when they go back to NSA and start looking at some of the conversations that she's had. And this is another great example of where Sigint may not be telling us the whole story because the Pakistanis refer to her as something in the intelligence circles that should be a red flag, but it's probably not meaning the same thing that we think it is. Well, uh, you know, uh, Malia Lodi at the time uh, when Robin is engaging with her and now she's back in Islamabad and she's, uh, she's back in the news business. She's back to being a journalist. And uh, being a journalist myself, uh, we often uh, refer to some of the people we talk to as sources. Uh, and now I'm sure, you know, uh, you know, certainly U.S. officials don't think uh, uh, Malia Lodi was acting as a journalist in her capacity in meetings with Robin and other American diplomats. She was, in the words of U.S. officials, she was a go-between uh, between uh, particularly uh, military uh, officials on the PAC side uh, and uh, U.S. officials. So when American officials wanted to know what the generals in Pakistan were thinking, Lodi was one of the go-to people. And so... You know, in some of the communications, we do not know if it was a Lodi communication or if it was another one of Robin's uh, uh, Pakistani contacts referred to as her as a source, which to the listeners, the eavesdroppers, sounded like tradecraft. Right. Because um, the eavesdroppers are NSA, right? Yeah. That's what they're right. going to think about. And, and FBI yeah. and the FBI agents who were assigned this case, they, they, they again, this is more smoke. It's, uh, it suggests nefarious activity uh, that could have a very benign explanation, but could also be malignant. 
and they didn't know which one it was. And so, uh, you know, uh, yeah, we, we, we don't want to give the wrong impression here that uh, the FBI is, uh, you know, acting inappropriately. Uh, they are genuinely trying to figure out what the hell is going on. Yeah, and it's got to be confusing because the conversations that she's having, things like about drones and coups and high-level conversations with the PACs and things like talking with the Taliban, these are way above her pay grade. Unless you understand how she works and the kind of relationships that she's built. It doesn't seem like the FBI took the time to really understand this old school diplomacy that we've kind of focused on here. Or for that matter, uh, you know, do a Google uh, search (laughs) and and realize that Robin in the 1990s was the first American to reach out to the Taliban. You know, that she was a pioneer in in that space. And that she was in the in the term uh, that's used at the State Department, she was delivering the mail because she had access that nobody else that a few other people had in the State Department. She would be asked by her colleagues to raise issues with her contacts that cover things like drones, reconciliation, um, you know, later on uh, a coup rumor that pops up, and so she is, um, you know, she's having conversations. Uh, that are broadly about the relationship, and she's talking about the things that her Pakistani contacts want to talk about. You cannot have a meeting in Pakistan during this time frame and not talk about the drone program, because right. this is all they want to talk about. And that's one of the biggest disconnects between state and FBI in this whole process. Um, <clears throat> one of the really shocking things to me in the course of the reporting was, at one point I was talking to a, a senior law enforcement official, and, and I said, look, help me understand this, because you keep saying that she just didn't have the authority to talk about these things. But if you're an American diplomat in Islamabad, pretty much every meeting you go to, someone's going to bring up the drone program. What are you supposed to do as a diplomat who is trying to build a relationship right. or at least at a minimum maintain a relationship? And the answer the person gave me was, don't say bomb on an airplane. And I said, really, how, does that, how is that workable for them? Like, how, how are they supposed to manage that? And the person just repeated, you don't say bomb on an airplane. And don't say drone in Pakistan. And I'll be honest, it really one of the things that was really striking, I think, to us is the different worldviews right. of state and FBI. And that, to me, is one of the most clear-cut examples of it. Because, you know, the, the, for the FBI, a lot of this intelligence issue, the, these intelligence questions and these intelligence subjects are just very bright lines. And, you know, Bob is authorized to talk to Doug about the red car. Bob can't talk to Doug about anything but the red car, and Bob's not allowed to talk to anyone else about the red car. Like, it's it's very right. binary, is what one person said. You know, for the Bureau, things are binary, on, off, authorized, unauthorized. And state is about engagement and contacts, especially with someone like Robin, and it is not binary for them. How much, this is a little bit off-the-cuff question, how much of the the reputation of the State Department of being kind of a, a home of lefties and commies and spies going back to Alger Hiss and even be, I mean, that's always been, I mean, I even, I talk in my dissertation, I joke about if you want to keep a secret, don't tell the State Department. I mean, that, that goes back to World War II, certainly. But does, is that a reputation that is still held among the intelligence? Oh, yes. And, 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 in, and in fact, I mean, I joke with Adam that, you know, this is like the old mantra about Seinfeld episodes where no one learns anything, no, no one improves, no one, no one, no one gets any better. And one of the things that I think you see in the course of the Robin investigation is that the people in the FBI believe they did everything right and they didn't do anything wrong and the consequences are basically they're fine with. 
And for the State Department, you know, a lot of those folks, their takeaway is, well, the Bureau people are terrible, and they don't understand what we do, and they're, like, out to get us for no good reason, and it's self-defeating to the country. So neither side, if anything, I think both sides came out of this with, with a dimmer view of the other, and that's not good for the country, generally right. speaking. And, and I think, I, I feel like you can watch, and you can look at what James Comey said about, about the State Department in his, in his Clinton email announcement and see, he specifically says, I think the State Department has a problem with its security culture. He's, I'm paraphrasing, but that's yeah. what he said. I, a point in which the article that I laughed out loud was when, the, when she comes back from the coup conversation and the FBI is now ready to do a full-fledged warrant and take all this stuff from her, the FBI agents walked up to her and asked a question that I, I, I just stopped and laughed. They asked her, do you know any foreigners? Which, if you had any I, – I mean, that just seems like a ridiculous qu- – even for you know, the, some closed-minded FBI – Kind of the lack of understanding of what she's done for decades at that point just seems ridiculous. It, it seems ridiculous, but uh, the next question reveals that uh, from the agents reveals that they knew exactly what they were doing. They they asked her to name the contact she speaks to most, and her response is she names the current Pakistani ambassador to the United States. She doesn't name Malia Lodi. Mm. They already knew she was talking to foreigners. In fact, they knew which foreigner she was talking to. It was a setup. They wanted to catch. They wanted to see how she responded to the question. And her response by not immediately saying Malia Lodi or whatever other name was on their little list, um, they became more suspicious that she was actually hiding something. So, to Robin and to people at the State Department, obviously this is a great example of. Uh, these guys, these agents, not understanding the State Department, when in fact it actually pretty much is the opposite. It was they 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 already knew the answers. They don't they don't ask a question unless they know the answer. Yeah, and that's the way to do an investigation yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. They're they're going to catch her uh, uh, messing up, and uh, you know uh, you know for a diplomat, foreign contacts is the key to being a successful diplomat. For an FBI agent, contact with foreigners is a liability. And so they approach it from these two different perspectives. But when the agents are asking her these questions, they already right. know the answer. And they're trying to catch her. The whole yeah. point is to catch her saying something so provably false or, so in, or in, in their mind, so incriminating that they now have a charge based solely on her answers. So in that same conversation, they ask her, well, do you have any classified documents in your home? And she says, well, no, of course not. And, and then the agent it. already has it in his hand and just flashes the front page at her, which has the markings on it. At which point, you know, it starts to register with her that she's actually could be in a fair bit of trouble. Yeah. And she starts giving an explanation for it. Yes, I, I, I know I'm supposed to, I, I wasn't supposed to take that home. And she starts thinking about lawyers for the first time. And the whole point of that confrontation on the porch is, you know they're bracing her. They are they are there to catch her in a lie, and and frankly they come away from that interview even though to Robin's mind she hasn't admitted anything or done anything wrong or or lied to them. Um, they come away from that interview thinking, okay, she's we've got her. We can we can charge her. Let's keep going. Yeah, well, and, and this is a situation where any trial uh, or any prosecution is going to be very tricky, not for the prosecutors but for her defense because. As we talked about, a lot of this evidence comes from SIGINT. A lot of this evidence is still considered probably classified to this day. They're right. state secrets. And 
unless you have a lawyer that's cleared, then you're in a situation where prosecutors don't even have the the, the requirement of discovery, right. where they don't have to pass along this information. Like, this is not just Robin's problem. This is a problem with anybody charged under these kind of security issues. And these are hard cases to bring. I mean, you know, in some ways, counterintelligence, CI work, is, is some of the most thankless work in, inside the FBI because... 99% of your investigations lead to no actual, like, overt consequence. But in this case, they actually thought they were going to end in charges. Like, the agents and, and the FBI thought, we are working toward charges on this, and we will get there, especially after the interview on her porch. Um, but after that, they start, you know, doing... Once they're overt, then they finally feel like they can go do the interviews with the people who work with her. Right, and find out. And at that the point... The State Department... A lot of opinions change. Yeah, I mean, that that seems like the you know the wool over their eyes is, is gone because they're finding out why she actually had right. access to this information. Now, and, and to their minds, you know, they they still think that uh, you know they they don't like what she was doing even after they find out that all of her bosses and coworkers were encouraging her to do exactly what. Uh, you know exactly what the FBI had caught her doing, which is talking about drones and talking about reconciliation and talking about coup rumors to try to get to the ground truth or as close to it as she could, you know, to try to figure out, well, what are the, what do the Pakistanis think of these issues and what's real? Uh, and so, you know, as the FBI agents start doing interviews with her bosses, they, they're, the bosses are looking at these FBI guys and they're, they're saying, you don't understand how we work. This is exactly what we do. Robin, as a former assistant secretary of state, as a senior uh, uh, senior diplomat back in the 90s, and later on as an ambassador to Tunisia, she had in her mind and in the minds of her bosses the right and the broad authority to discuss anything uh, that these Pakistani officials wanted to talk about, with the exception of classified information. Right. And uh, in the end... You know, as far as we were able to determine, she was discussing uh, topics that were classified, drones, maybe some coup rumors. But the things that she was getting from her contacts, the information she was getting, was, you know, uh, very similar to what was actually coming in through signals intelligence. Yeah, well, that's the crazy thing about it is she was so good at her job that she's getting information that the FBI thought that she had stolen from the president's daily brief. Right. You know, which is like right. the holy grail of intelligence work. And it was so similar that they're like, how did you get this? Because she's good at her job. Well, right. And also, it, it, that's one of the things they ask her coworkers about. And it's baffling to her coworkers because from the coworkers' point of view, it's like, well, Robin doesn't read the PDP. Yeah. Robin doesn't know what's in that document. Like, how would how would that even work from their point of view? And, you know, it, it again, it shows you the disconnect and the just completely different worldviews and it also shows you that what is viewed as a important secret in washington may just be you know coffee talk in islamabad like it, it those two they can have different definitions of those things and you have to have some awareness of what the other's definitions are right yeah I mean, so let's move ahead a little bit talking about the no, no go ahead. i just wanted to say you know you have to understand so the nsa is targeting many officials in Pakistan, current and former. Malia Lodi is one of them. Robin's sources are the same people, or contacts, are the same people the NSA is already listening to. Mm -hmm. Right. She, you know, so the NSA is sucking up their conversations and considering that a secret. 
Robin is sitting down with them and having a coffee and talking about the same thing. Where does it, you know, it's the chicken and the egg, you know, <laughs> where does this, where, where is the, is Robin getting the same information directly face to face that the NSA is, is basically sucking out of their phones? And the answer to that was yes. Uh, and so, you know, Robin was basically kind of like the equivalent of what the NSA was doing. Um, she was just doing it face to face while while the NSA was eavesdropping. Yeah, it's Sigan versus human. The, but the irony is the NSA is eavesdropping on her conversations. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, so. it, it, they're they're listening to her contacts, reporting on their meetings with her, uh, and uh, and for that matter, you know when it when it comes to the coup talk. Robin goes and she talks to them about what they're hearing about a coup. The NSA is listening to those contacts, and that same information the NSA is 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 stealing from these people is making it to the president's daily brief, not the information that Robin is getting in her coffee chat with the same person in their house. It, it and then and then later when they're looking and they're seeing. Why is the NSA getting something similar to what Robin's getting? It's because she's talking to the same people. Right. Well, and that's where the prosecution just really has nothing to do, but they still have this conversation about prosecuting her for 20-year-old Right, the mishandling. Docket, the mishandling. And, and again, I think her case is instructive into how tricky it is, the, the, the act of just making prosecution decisions about mishandling. Because one of the things we heard even from law enforcement officials is there is not always great clarity in, in, in why some people are charged with mishandling and, some, and others aren't within the government. There, that, to some people in law enforcement, that still feels to them internally subjective. And so there's a period of time where after the search and after the investigation and after all these interviews, the FBI is still pushing for, char- for her to be charged with mishandling. And the Justice Department isn't really sold on it. And eventually, the Justice Department view of it wins out. But that is a long process. It, that right. takes like months, if not a full year, I think. And when it costs her, like, it costs a hundred thousand dollars <throat> in legal fees. Well, right, and and so it costs her a ton of money to defend herself in, in a case where she was never actually charged. And you know, I, I asked someone in law enforcement about that, and I'm like, how? You know, I get that you didn't charge her, and you feel like you did all the right things at the right times, but. What do you say to someone who's like, well, I just dropped 120 grand, like just to try and clear my name a little? And the response was, well, everyone should just have insurance. Everyone in the government should just have insurance. It's like, well, that's a cold view of, right. of how to work because if, if every government employee has to get, take out an insurance policy basically to defend themselves against the FBI, like that would be a pretty weird dynamic. Although, frankly, I wouldn't be surprised if as a result of what happened to Robin Rafel, I would bet. There are more people at the State Department today who have such insurance it than had them before. Growth industry now, uh, but she is she. She doesn't even have a security clearance back, right? I mean, diplomatic security hasn't restored, even though she's not under investigation anymore. Yeah. Well, as of the moment of this interview, uh, she has not uh, had that restored. Uh, there's definitely an effort on the part of the State Department to try to do that, um, but uh, according to officials at the State Department, the FBI is uh, running interference and uh, doesn't want that to happen. You know, the FBI doesn't want to look like they made any mistakes. And in their mind, uh, you know, uh, her having those documents in her house and other, you know, infractions that she had received, security infractions she had received over the course of her career, which are which the numbers of which, uh, you know, for somebody of so many decades of service is not unusual. But from the FBI's perspective, uh, particularly the agents involved, and, uh, you know, there is a 
there are grounds for her not to get the clearance back, and they're they're right. trying to push back and prevent it. Uh, obviously, from uh, the standpoint of somebody like Robin and for many of her colleagues, that's scary. Um, you know, she was not found guilty of a crime. She was never even charged with a crime. Uh, the agents, you know, the people who were in charge of the case at the FBI now acknowledge that they misjudged and that she wasn't a spy. The worst thing that she is is somebody who took home documents that she should have, shouldn't have in 2005 and left them there until they were discovered in a sneak and peek and followed, uh, you know, a 2014 uh, raid on her house. Um, should, uh, you know, should basically uh, somebody lose their reputation, lose their occupation um, based on nothing more then really a leak to a couple journalists back in 2014, uh, and somebody's career and, and uh, reputation will never be restored. Well, let's go beyond Robin. So I don't know her. Let's let's be a realist here. She's one person. But the stupidity for me is that this is probably the person that knows Pakistan better than anybody walking on Earth, at least in the United States. This is somebody that could be incredibly valuable for American foreign policy. And not allowing her to go back and do what she does, even if, I mean, I assume she would be okay with that, seems to be an asset that we're, we're stupidly stopping ourselves from using because of this FBI investigation. Well, and I think, but I think that reflects the intelligence community's broadly held view that with, when it comes to Pakistan, the intelligence community should be in the lead and the diplomats should essentially sit far in the back of the car and, you know, contribute when asked, but otherwise stay out of what is, you know, in some ways a quasi-military campaign in Pakistan. And, and you know, it speaks to the degree to which, you know, the, the, the security issue, you know, is, is just sort of drives everything. And, and, dri- and it's not, I mean, as much as this, in some ways, this could only have happened in Pakistan, this is not just about U.S.-Pakistan relations. Like, just as a random aside, I was an intern in the U.S. Embassy in London in the 90s when I was first out of college. Nice internship. It was, it was fun. I went back there a few years ago for work, and that place is like a prison now. Like, you visit the U.S. Embassy in London, which is not, I mean, I'm sorry, there, there are dangers everywhere, but it's not that dangerous a place. And you feel like you're being processed. I've, I've gone to maximum security prisons that have less intense scrutiny than visiting the U.S. Embassy in London as an American. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that posture has sort of gone out around the world for us, and I think there are consequences of that. It's, it's where do we want to get our information? Uh, do we want to get the information by stealing it, um, by eavesdropping on conversations, by paying uh, CIA assets or confidential informants to basically provide information? Or do we want to go meet people uh, and get information by talking to them using charm and a combination of things that Robin used and that others used to try to get information? Uh, the, um, you know, there was a, a, a joke at the embassy um, where the, uh, uh, the State Department officials would uh, make fun of the CIA uh, for always paying to get information. <laughs> and they called it the Bordello Principle. Which basically the idea is like it's like paying uh, for, for 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 a prostitute, uh, and you you know your 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 people are, have an incentive to give you things that may not be true. Um, the CIA guys at the embassy countered with what they called the used car principle, which is you get what you pay for, and uh, you know the, the, so from this this is two different philosophies right. to how do you get information and what's more reliable. Obviously, the answer is somewhere in between. 
You know, it's uh, not being over-reliant on humant and not looking at SIGINT, and it's not, you know, the opposite. There's some middle ground, right. uh, you know, that needs to be found, and that is, you know, when, when the CIA does an assessment, when, when it tries to figure out what's happening someplace, it's called all-source intelligence. They're supposed to take a little bit of this and a little bit of that right. and then pull it together. And are we moving in a direction uh, that is, uh, you know, behind the fortress walls of the embassy so that we have no context, we get less uh, human, or as it's called, human intelligence, and then we have to rely more and more on signals intelligence. Yeah, because, I mean, you, you talk about the fact that she's a State Department officer, but there are a lot of case officers, former and current out there, listening to this going, yeah, that's that's human. That's, you know, what the agencies do. And, you know, cultivating sources is exactly, it's not just a State Department diplomat thing. That's it's what CIA officers do. Um, and she's just doing something that is not being done very much anymore because like you talked about going out in the streets and talking to people is kind of a dying art uh, because of security concerns and because of reliance on technology. Right. And so as as the pendulum has, you know, post 9-11, you know, because of very legitimate security concerns, those are not to be uh, we're not uh, disputing those security concerns uh, that that really exists. And obviously the priority of the government is to protect its people. And so not having them out there uh, in danger, we understand that that would be a priority for the State Department diplomatic security and the FBI and others. The FBI's job is to protect secrets. Uh, it's right. trying to protect right. people, protect secrets. Uh, you know, so these two, uh, these two uh, things are in uh, conflict with each other. You know, uh, do you get out there and mix where you might be vulnerable, uh, either to having information stolen or your life stolen, uh, or do you stay at the embassy locked up where you're safe, or for that matter, not even have an embassy and just have a what, what's a listening post, just have a giant you know, a radio tower that's going to suck up everything <laughs> right. that people are talking about in a, in a given place. You know, it's those, that's the choice. And obviously the answer is somewhere in between, right. uh, some middle ground. Uh, and is the pendulum swung too much in the direction of relying on technical means, as it's referred to, or signals intelligence yeah. and other types of collection? So in the last two years since this case came down, how much has this become a bit of a what not to do for State Department officials. How much of this has become a, uh, you know, don't do what Robin did because the NSA is listening, or you might get investigated by the. Well, FBI. right, and a bunch of the a bunch of the diplomats Adam spoke to talked specifically to that, which is that it's like a, a, a basically a fearful lesson. Yeah, I mean, you know, diplomats, uh, you know, that I've spoken to, um, you know, they they don't want to go one on one to meetings anymore. They want to bring a note note taker everywhere they go or somebody else, a control officer, as it's known, within the State Department. And obviously, if you're meeting with somebody and you have a note-taker or somebody else right. sitting there, why would anybody tell you anything? Yeah, right? because Robin was smart enough not to take notes at the meeting. She'd yeah. be able to write this stuff up later yeah. on. So, yeah, so, I mean, I, you know, as a journalist, it's it's kind of the same uh, practice. And, you know, you want your the person who's talking to feel comfortable and feel protected and not feel like they're about to get screwed over. Otherwise, why would they tell you anything, especially something that's sensitive? And so, you know, the result is, is, uh, you know, m- more people are nervous about having these contacts uh, that because the concern is, is that uh, the person they're talking to will report the communication internally within that country or internationally. The NSA will grab it and then somebody will, some analyst somewhere will misinterpret the information or the person that they met with maybe lies, twists it to make, to make themselves look better to their boss. Right. 
is this something that we need some kind of legislation or executive order to deal with? Because uh, in this case, John Kerry completely apologizes to Robin for this, and she's still not out of the clear. She's in the clear. She's still in a position where she's fighting for security clearance. Uh, do we need to go beyond that so people at state? Well, I just wanted to say, yeah. like, uh, just so you know, I mean, he, his apology, uh, if you can call it that. Was it was a whispered Wait, apology in her ear? Yeah, uh, right. He had uh, he has not made a public apology, uh, and I think that reflects kind of the underlying tension here of the story, which is the FBI is super powerful, the State Department's not that powerful, and uh, John Kerry is nervous um, publicly embracing a person that has not been charged, but nonetheless has this um, aura of uh, misconduct uh, that has never been washed clean despite the fact that the FBI didn't bring the case. And, you know, he, he, he thought he has, the State Department has not uh, come clean on this one. And everything they've done to back Robin has mostly been behind the scenes. Right. And, and, again, I think you can make a very compelling case for that everyone learned the wrong lesson from this case, meaning State Department people learned basically to be more, more careful, less engaged, and more cautious, which arguably you don't want your diplomats to be. And the FBI's takeaway is that they did everything right and the State Department are a bunch of jerks. And that doesn't seem to spell good things going forward. And, you know, that fight has played out since then in, in other cases. And the, the, the suspicion and distrust between those two camps is, has only gotten greater, I think, since this case ended. Um, and I think, you know, you, you ask, like, well, is, is there a legislative fix here? I'll be honest. Every time people talk about, you know, trying to rein in the class of both the classification as, as an activity right. and also the classification as a turf war, which it often becomes, and, and arguably it was a lot of what went on in this case, you know, those efforts generally go nowhere because, one, I think a lot of people don't understand, a lot of people, even government, don't understand the, the intricacies of classification right. and how it works. And, two, who's the political benefactor of, of making such a change? It wouldn't be any of the agencies involved. I mean, in theory, state could benefit by having the FBI not breathing down its neck quite so much. But really, there's no great constituency for, you know, telling everyone to chill out right. a little bit. Um, and so I, I'll be honest, I'm skeptical. I, I think I think bad lessons were learned and, and bad lessons may therefore be repeated. I, a bit of a different note. It seems like there may be a push or it may be at least some political will to rein in the FBI a little bit after Comey and the Hillary Clinton emails and after the FBI and the CIA are now at odds over the Russian hacks. The FBI seems to be the outlier on some of these more uh, infamous. The FBI is in a very strange place right now as far as intelligence goes, as far as, you know, domestic politics goes. I, you know, it's my job to cover them. And I can't tell you with any confidence exactly how Comey plays through this next piece, but it is absolutely true that a lot more people are deeply skeptical of the FBI because of what happened in this election than they were six, even six months ago. Um, and, and I think they have some decisions to make as to how they proceed with that publicly going forward. Um, you know, so far they're, they're basically just not very publicly active right. and they're not, and I think the question is going to be, I think those questions won't be answered until Trump is the president personally. Um, but I look, I think part of the reason why I like the Rafel case as, as like a, an exercise in reporting and explaining is that in many ways you get at some of the issues, some of the really intense issues that surrounded the Clinton email case without the sort of like 
almost, you know, strangling, you know, presence of Clinton, because once you say Clinton, everyone has an opinion, right. regardless of what the actual issues are, the technical issues are. And, and but a lot of those issues that a lot of the issues that existed in the Rafel investigation come up again in the Clinton email case, right down to Holbrook's office. Right. Like that, that is a through line that goes through all this stuff. Well, the crazy thing about, I mean, for me, living in Washington, D.C., was this long article. I mean, it's a long-form piece. Give yourself some time to read it. Uh, has 15, 20 actual physical people in it or so. And I, have, I didn't question once. I wonder if this is a Democrat or a Republican. Right? There's no politics whatsoever involved. There's, there's ideological philosophy when it comes to foreign policy and how we do it. But there, this is not a political piece in any way, shape, or form. Uh, and that's refreshing after coming out of you know the election we just did. But it really shows that this this is a universal issue. This is not you know a Republican going after Clinton as a Democrat. That's right. certainly something else. This is something that no matter who you are, no matter what political party you're in, you have the possibility of being falling into this kind of a situation. Right, because there are bureaucratic yeah. interests and and frankly mission interests. Like it's not. It's not like the State Department is out to do bad things or the FBI is out to do bad things, but they have different missions, and when it comes to the areas of intelligence, those two th missions can come into open and direct conflict with each other, and they have. And I think if, if, I were those, if I worked in either one of those organizations, I would be worried that they're going to come into more conflicts like this, not less. I mean, it's a power struggle basically between, uh, you know, the subtext here is a power struggle between the State Department, which uh, is trying to... Uh, basically uh, uh, exercise some measure of say uh, 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 over uh, policy towards Pakistan, which uh, was increasingly defined by a counterterrorism policy, which uh, was basically in the wheelhouse of the CIA. And so you had, a, uh, you had a CIA that had equities that it wanted to defend, and you had uh, Holbrook and Robin, uh, less so Robin, but certainly Holbrook, who who is really uh, who are, who is challenging uh, the CIA's ability to uh, to basically control that policy, and so uh, you know what was happening in the Clinton emails and what's happening in this story is uh, you basically had the State Department try to exert some influence, and you had the CIA uh, try to prevent them from exercising that influence, and uh, in the end um, we see who the winner was, uh, and it was the CIA. Um, in the end, reality is that uh, the State Department actually kind of did win when it came to the when it came to the drone program because you have seen that program uh, become less contentious in Pakistan. It's not as the strikes are not as frequent. Part of that has to do with there's fewer Al Qaeda militants right. to kill, fewer uh, bad guys to yeah. kill. Me, and, and, and another, uh, but another reason is because uh, you know taking into account the sensitivities in Pakistan helped the political leadership there uh, tone down their. Uh, attacks against the program, the public attacks. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in some ways, if Holbrook were alive today, um, he actually managed to somewhat succeed in that, in that effort. Um, uh, but he's, he's dead. And, uh, and in the end, the people who, uh, uh, you know, who were trying to exercise that say over our policies in Pakistan uh, are out. Uh, right. They, uh, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton is out uh, and uh, Donald Trump is in. Uh, and uh, a lot of the people who uh, pushed aggressively uh, to uh, ramp up the drone program and who uh, view Pakistan as an enemy, uh, they are uh, the people who are going to be getting 
you know, uh, more prominent positions in the Trump administration. Uh, in some in some ways, if we look to the future, if let's say that we have Fortress America, uh, and that was something that popped up after 9/11, and Obama at least rhetorically talked about taking the U.S. off this permanent war footing, I think we can see with uh, Trump's uh, uh, campaign rhetoric, maybe it's rhetoric and maybe not, um, that's not his priority. His priority is uh, again doubling down on counterterrorism operations. It's uh, if anything. You know, loosening restraint uh, uh, that ha- that the Obama administration put in place when it came to you know uh, how many uh, you know who do we kill in in uh, in uh, Syria and Iraq that might be associated with uh, with ISIS. But there are some crazy cross currents to that too, yeah. right? Yeah. Because what what we're seeing, and obviously everything is temporal, and you know this could change in a week or a day, given the state of Twitter. You know, what we're seeing is, like, open conflict between the incoming administration and the CIA. Right. How does that factor into exactly what he... Because everything he just said is exactly right, but there's this other large fight that's going on between those two sides. And does, does one fight spill over into the other? Does one, does one fight calm down the other? I, uh, I, I'm looking forward to finding out. Yeah, I know. This, this administration coming up is going to be... Uh... Quite interesting for historians, journalists, and political scientists alike. That right, and, and intelligence. I, I can't remember a time when there, when intelligence was so much a part of the political discussion on basically a daily basis. Yeah. And I, I don't think that's by accident. I think we've sort of slowly walked our way as a country toward that. And now we're here, and now we're going to apparently be having very politic, political intelligence conversations or very intelligence-oriented politics conversations. I can't tell which, but I think it's a big deal. I don't think it's going away. Yeah, so that's uh, at least it will make my job interesting as well as your jobs as well. Uh, the article in Wall Street Journal is called The Last Diplomat. Uh, let me reiterate, it's worth the read. Give yourself about 15, 20 minutes because it's not a normal short article. Tons of research went into this. Uh, it's it's a kind of a, a mini book in many ways. Uh, I can't recommend it enough. You can find it uh, if you can't. Google it enough. Go to at least Devlin's Twitter feed. I'm not sure uh, Adams as well, uh, and you can find the link to it. Uh, it's it's an extraordinary article. I know I've used that word over and over again, uh, but the minute I read it, I'm like, I have to have these two guys on Spycast. So Adam Entis, Devlin Barrett, thank you for taking the time to join us here today. Thanks a ton. Great to be here. Thank you for joining us on SpyCast. Every Tuesday, we'll give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion, you can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Or tweet us at INTL SpyCast. That's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes, and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey 
That's cyberwire.com slash survey to share your feedback now. <laughs> 